Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, my name is Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Reveley. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back. Scott, how is your summer going? Well, the the eight days of it so far, pretty good. <laughs> eight days. This is going to be a recurring segment on the City on a Hill podcast. It's warm. We're happy. Things are going that's, well. That's right. And um, I'm. I, you ask how it's going. I'm still keeping my promise not to complain about the sunshine or the heat because of all the rain we had. Nice. It's like it was so rainy so for so long. I just vowed, whatever I do, I'm not going to complain about the sunshine or the heat. That's awesome. And I'm not. So I, far. I have to say it is way more enjoyable to door knock when, when it's sunny than when it's raining. Okay. <laughs> I would expect so. That's not the only reason I'm enjoying the sun, but it's, it's a recent reason. It's I'm a practical reason. Yes. 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 So have you finished any books lately? Well, not, not the old-fashioned way, shall we say. I, um, my family is out of town, and so I actually took the dive into uh, audiobooks because when there are people around to talk to me, I don't have the time to listen to audiobook. So is this kind of your first, like your first dive into audiobooks? Uh, I may have listened to one a long time ago, but I don't generally travel that long or, you know, have that oh, bigger sure, commute sure, or anything. Commute, so, yeah. so I don't really get into audiobooks, but now that everyone's gone, I'm listening to books. And I did just listen to one, um, I'm trying to make redeem that time for the podcast and listen to This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War by Drew Gilpin Faust. Mm, chipper Sunday, s- summer well, read. I was hoping, you know, it, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping no one would, I guess I just said it out loud, didn't I? Like no one would discover, what, is it, what are you listening to? The Republic of Suffering, like that's <laughs> what kind of person goes on to listening about death in the American Civil War? Well, anyway, I did. So there you go. <laughs> now you don't have to. There, that's that's my contribution. Nice. Why do you listen to City on the Hill podcast? Well, so I don't have to read those dumb books that Scott reads. <laughs> that's why. Anyway, the uh, I was pretty curious about how religion impacted the Civil War or the mm. Civil War impacted religion. That was really what I was underneath, and I figured that when it came time to die, that would be a time when it would impact, uh, religion would impact uh, mm. politics and vice versa. And sure enough, the, the book bore that out. And, and partly because of the magnitude of the carnage in the Civil War. I mean, roughly 2% of the population which was an estimated 620,000 men lost their lives in the line of duty. If you were to make that equivalent in today's population, the toll would be as high as 6 million people. Wow. Which, when you compare that even with all of the loss that we had in COVID, that is... About six times? Yeah. We're about a million, 1.01 million right now. And so that made everybody stop and ask religious questions, mm. which was really interesting. 
In fact, up until the Vietnam War, the number of people killed in the Civil War surpassed all the other wars America had been involved in combined. Wow. So the World Wars, the Revolution, all of, all of them. If you were conscripted to serve, your chances of dying in the, in the Civil War were one in four. Mm. So one out of four soldiers didn't come home, which meant that this um, probably impacted, well, one out of four families, roughly, 25%. Oh, if not more, yeah. Yeah, so it was, I mean, directly. Well, like, and, and what's interesting, <clears throat> no matter, it's, it's obvious, but no matter, no matter which side the death occurred, it still counts as a death in America. Mm-hmm. So that, that is probably, it's double at least of what it would have been if you would have just looked at the casualties of whatever war. Oh, when everyone's on have, the same side. Right, you, have, yeah. you count losses on both sides. Uh, and, and we all know the stories of uh, one brother on this side, one brother on that side. So you're affecting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. So so it was a uh, you can you can understand why everyone would ask religious questions if sure. that was going on. I mean, that it, not only that, I mean, it was difficult for that reason, um, but it was difficult because both sides claimed that God was on their side. I mean, even right. even Lincoln's second inaugural admitted that. He said, in talking about both sides, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, that neither has been answered fully. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. What a writer. Oh, that's, that's just beautiful. And that's to at read. the Lincoln Monument yeah. etched in the walls. It's just mm-hmm. one, of, one of the incredible pieces of American <laughs> writing, I think. Yeah, and that's not even maybe the most beautiful part of it. it I mean, I just reread it to get that little section, mm-hmm. but the, it's, it's, it is beautiful. A beautiful speech for sure. But the thing is, it, it, because both sides saw this as a religious war in part, mm-hmm. both claiming God was on their side, then when they had this level of uh, death, of course they asked religious questions, and of course they had all sorts of uh, issues with God. Now, that made me begin to think, you know, kind of like, what's the story behind the story? Mm. What is going on around the world or in the church at this time? And, I mean, some of the things, this will just give some um, background. The book talked about the good death or the Ars Morindi. And that the good death was kind of idealized at that time. And uh, to die at home, surrounded by family and friends with a mm. uh, peaceful, you know, peaceful expression on your face so that everyone, mm. so the people watching would get comfort that you were on your way to heaven instead of on your way you know, to the other place, there was this sense in which there was a good way to die. And when you were killed instantly by, uh, you know, mortar or something, mm. you didn't get that. And you died away from family and, and friends. You didn't get the good death. And so um, there were, in the, you know, story after story of soldiers who made the, the person next to them promise they were killed, tell my mom that I, mm. you know, died with valor and that I was, uh, uh, made my peace with God or something like that. So that there was this um, this expectation that 
that people were on their way to the, the soldiers were on their way to heaven it, mm. when they were killed. So, so the good death was was something people would as, would be aspiring to just in the normal course of life, right? And it was dramatically disrupted with a civil war. So this isn't you, you'll hear about honorable deaths in like ancient, like classical, right? Uh, like Homer, the Iliad, or the Odyssey. Yeah, They're talking about honorable it, death. It's descended. This is the idea of descended from okay. that. That to be killed on the battlefield with apart from anybody at a distance from, you know, not hand-to-hand combat, but at right. a distance with a bullet or mortar or whatever, right. was not a good death. Mm. And um, and yet there was there was a strong attempt by so many soldiers to send the news back to family or in, you know, if if the person next to you died, you felt an obligation to reflect to their next of kin that they were, uh, that they died a good death. Mm. So it is, it's, it's related to the, sure. Um, but what that, you know, not so much Homer, but by the time we get civil war, the good death, uh, was reflected by a religious, uh, certainty or religious comfort that yes, in fact, the deceased was going to heaven and the next of kin would see that person again someday. Okay, very much like people talk at a funeral still today, mm-hmm. but it was <laughs> there was a lot of funerals and it was really active. This whole concept, and so of course that's uh, that's part of the difficulty when it happened at this scale. Uh, you know, then there were many questions about were the soldiers really believing soldiers, mm. or were you know did mom just want them to be believing, and so there were questions about it. And one of the questions became, uh, if the person wasn't religious, did dying in the service of your country or a noble cause hmm. count as a good death? Which then meant oh, that immediately there was a confluence between religion and politics, even right. on the you know battlefield. Right. And so the there there was not a separation of religion and your um, belief about your country. Uh, as soldiers were dying, uh, really in unprecedented numbers during the Civil War. So, this is, exa- again, it exacerbates that tension. I believe I'm on the right side. You believe you're on the right side. Like, if if, if you're banking on that, like being the just cause, um, or being in war for a just cause, only one of you's right. Yeah. And so that, that's just interesting. That tension just increases with the need to describe a good death. Right. It was a super, I mean, so you're thinking, what a dummy reads a book about our Republic of suffering and death and the civil war. But it is pretty interesting when you start kind of peeling the onion a little bit to see where, what are the issues there? You know, the issues are uh, pretty significant and they're driven not just by, you know, by one soldier, but by, you know, one out of four soldiers who's mm-hmm. killed in the war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of them suffer terribly, some die instantly, but it was a, it was a big deal. And so, um, because of, you know, both on the battlefield and at home, when people either, you know, didn't hear from their loved one or couldn't, couldn't, you know, see them when they died and didn't know, um, you can imagine all of America was rocked by death. Mm. And so they had to ask all of these questions and they had to come to grips with a God who would allow such evil and such suffering. Mm. See that, that to me was where I started to ask the question was if it's at that scale, uh, you, you cannot have 
I mean, that will affect your doctrine. It will affect what you believe. Right. You can't just dismiss that and pretend you didn't know. Right. Or pretend you didn't think about it. I mean, it was there in front of you all the time. Well, to put it in perspective, one in four who went, you, you said probably one in four families. You're sitting at church. There's a family in front of you, a family behind you, family to your left, family to your right. One of them lost someone in the war. Yeah. And that, that's the level of knowledge you would have about what's going on. Yeah, and it wasn't like they had moved recently into your town to work right. at the at Amazon. You know, they actually grew up there. Their grandparents oh, yeah. went to that same church. I mean, it was deep. Well, in the battalions, I, I happen to be reading the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant right now. Not pure coincidence, actually. Uh, but the battalions were formed by city, right? Or by actually by congressional district. So they'd say, "Hey, we need a, we need a battalion." And I'm, I might be messing up those words, but whatever size mm -hmm. of military unit. And they would be formed by within an entire district. So you'd know everybody. And it would be this whole, this whole battalion's going, and they're all from, say, Westland or Norgan City yeah. and whatever. Um, so if you lost a significant amount from that battalion, you lost whole chunks of cities. Right. It's like, I mean, it's like your football team goes. But right. it's not like, oh, somebody got tackled. It's somebody got killed. and. And one out of four of you did. Right. It would mean it's brutal. Right. And they've changed that. that. That's not the way things are organized. I don't think, I don't even think they did that in World War II anymore. I think it still was in World War I, but then they started making it fairly diversified regionally to help with that problem. Well, yeah, partly because if one group fell into the you right. know, enemy hands, then the whole town was right. bereaved. Right. So, um, Anyway, I began to think about how would this much death affect what the church believed. I mean, they both believed they were right. They both believed God was on their side, and yet there was all this death. And so how did that affect what the church then believed? Because, I mean, people were very religious. This, this was right, uh, I believe, after the Second Great Awakening. Mm. And so there was a... There was a uh, religious resurgence, or I don't remember exactly when the Great Awakening was. Maybe it was in the 1880s. I don't remember. But it was, there was a religious resurgence. And the, um, one of the things that happened uh, as people were claiming God on their side and believing so fervently was that the church went into the Civil War, the church, when I say generally. The Third Great Awakening was in the 1850s. Okay. And the Second Great Awakening was early 1800s, so still right okay. right on the cusp. Well, um, sorry for the interruption. No, that's fine. No, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I, I would have put it a little later. The, um, the thing that you have, though, is the church going into the Civil War predominantly post-millennial, meaning that the church had an optimistic view of the way that the, the world was and how the church was going to help usher in the millennial reign of Christ. And that was the predominant view. I mean, Jonathan Edwards was that way. And, you know, colonial America was that way. It, it had been the predominant view for a long time. But you get to the Civil War and you have all of this, um, mm. just all of this death and mayhem and evil. And it basically tilled the soil for a different view of the world. Mm. I mean, this big doctrinal shift. Right. So now... Um, this doesn't seem to be getting better. I have to account for that. Right. And so they, so in some regard, doctrine, uh, a movement came along called dispensationalism that was premillennial and included a rapture. And so you have this um, move 
in churches in general. I mean, the, the dispensational started in England with John Nelson Darby and uh, Plymouth Brethren. He made seven trips over here, uh, some of kind of during the Civil War period, hmm. and uh, it got a foothold. It was after the Civil War then when uh, C.I. Schofield and um, some others uh, adopted it. We got in a Schofield reference Bible, which I grew up with, and um, it spread like wildfire. Uh, D.L. Moody ended up being convinced of it by one of his uh, associates. And um, so then when he started a Bible college movement, basically, mm-hmm. um, they were all dispensational. Mm. or you know, The ones connected with him were dispensational. And so they had a different view of, of history. The, diff- the view of history was that history is getting worse. God's going to rescue us from it. Mm. And then God will have his reign. And At least in part influenced by how decimating uh, the Civil War was in America. Yeah, here's, here's what it says in dispensationalism, dispensationalism in America. It says, Dispensational theology furnished a reasonable explanation for how God could be sovereign over a world that seemed to be increasingly evil. Americans had difficulty retaining postmillennial optimism in view of the Civil War and World War I. The development of slums, immigration, rising crime, big business, and other social conditions related to industrialization. Dispensationalism made sense to many Calvinists who were pessimistic about individual human nature, and it followed that society as a whole was in the same condition. Just as individual salvation required a miracle from heaven, so society, so would society if it were to be changed. And so... Um, that is the, in, the, the inflection point uh, for a new way of looking at the world doctrinally by the church, which is, right. in my mind, that's just amazing that, that you would have um, external circumstances uh, sort of drive a, a doctrinal revision. Right. Now... So this is, I'm thinking about this while I'm hoeing my garden, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is kind of how it's kind of going through my brain. And As so I, one does. Yes, I was looking <laughs> at some of these things, thinking, okay, <clears throat> is this the only time it's happened? Yep. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, everyone. <laughs> well. Well, you, you asked that question, and it's a, I think the, the observation is more astounding than the reality of it. Like, oh, this thing happened. Well, yeah, I should be observing this because, of course, we're influenced by what we're observing and what are the big, uh, the big events of the day. It, as soon, I mean, as soon as you begin to think about that, you do see it, mm-hmm. right? You do see how that happens. I mean, there was a, um, you know, the Reformation was um, important to the church. I'll say that. Yes. And as it was reformed, there were of the day. <laughs> yeah, there were all sorts of religious wars, and um, a, a vacillation between Catholicism and Protestantism, and mm-hmm. this and that within various within uh, various countries, and uh, this work of power and um, a, a grasp for power bet- between different kinds of churches, and so there were different. Um, doctrines that came out of it. I mean, one was the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which means you have to defy tyrants. Mm. And, you know, Romans 13 doesn't apply, and different things that 
and, and that came, that was first articulated by Christian men in Magdeburg, Germany in 1550, mm. which meant that the, the, um, the environment they found themselves in and these um, magistrates that were exercising unjust and immoral laws needed to be opposed. And they probably did need to be opposed and they probably were unjust. And these guys, you know, crafted a doctrine mm. to say we'll defy tyrants. I mean, I say, I, I, I say defy tyrants because there are people now who wear apparel and different things, um, coffee cups that say defy tyrants. When they're, th- they're talking about uh, vaccine mandates or mask mandates or something, not realizing that that particular doctrine had its roots in a historical context. Mm. And you think about... And maybe not even realizing that there's a higher-minded doctrine to it at all, which is, that's a typical thing. You have, you have something that becomes kind of a pop theology from some... From, that's fair, yeah. Uh, f- something formal becomes pop theology and ends up on coffee mugs. Right. And that, that's just interesting in itself. Yeah, there is a lot that's interesting. The more you think about this, and I, I think that's my goal for this episode, is that people would just have their eyes open and think and realize I'm a product of history. I am, mm. I am in this place and time, and this place and time influences me and the way I believe and actually how I look at my Bible. So here are a couple other illustrations as I begin thinking about this. You have... Um, the religious wars, we already mentioned that. Out of that came a number of things. You, you had, um, like I, I, I know you had in 1640, I believe, it was Roger Williams articulate the freedom of the conscience, mm-hmm. which we got baked into our, um, our state documents <laughs> in the United States. And, um, and we like that. Mm-hmm. And it uh, has to do with the religious liberty and the separation of church and state. But, but that freedom of conscience came from a, co- a conscience that was coerced when, you know, Great Britain v- vacillated between Protestantism and Catholicism. And right. that doctrine had roots in history. And, and the religious wars in the decades prior to that, yes. prior to them coming over. Right. And yeah. it was expressed then as a, you know, a, a doctrine that then people believed. Uh, that that freedom of conscience found its expression in the colonies, even um, sort of an anti-establishment kind of a attitude. Mm. Um, and you had somebody historically, George Whitfield, come in, and the Great Awakening hit the colonies, and there was this. So there was this historical freedom of conscience that was sort of the setup for the Great Awakening. He was not accountable to any church or denomination, but was a superstar and people came to hear him and there was this individual religious fervor, which then uh, set in motion the independent uh, individualistic uh, Mm. idea that gave us the American Revolution. In other words, those things are all said in history and the doctrine and the way that we relate to the state are influenced, both of them, by the moment in history that they found themselves in. And so it's, um, I think it's really interesting. <laughs> um, you, you know, I already talked about the Civil War, but uh, you just kind of go through American history and you got World War One and the Depression. 
that's immense. That's immense. What was what was initiated at the Civil War? That mm-hmm. yeah, we got problems, and the world's not getting better. We can't we can't say it's getting better, so we can't be postmillennial. It cemented the doctrine of the premillennial uh, um, premillennial doctrine and the doctrine of the rapture. Right, and um, you know you. You go a little farther, you've got World War II, and then the subsequent Cold War, and we now have an atheistic enemy mm-hmm. where we, we've never had that before. See, I, th- I think that's one of, the, right. one of the things that's really new there is that the enemy before had also been religious or mm-hmm. had also been Christian. I mean, you had the Crusades where, but then, you know. Well, they were religious. They were religious, and yeah. they weren't atheistic for sure. Right. But anyway, we have an atheistic, for the first time, an atheistic enemy. Where do we find theism in the church? And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I think in the World War II and the Cold War, you have God and country and in God we trust. And this move to um, to bring together right. uh, religion and, and the country in a way that never happened before because of the historical moment. Right. So that's the, that's the way I'm thinking about it. You go That's on. where we get the "in God we trust" phrases, and right, but but partly to position America right. against this atheistic Im- enemy. Yeah, it was it was more of a national posture than it was a theological posture. Well, I'm I'm saying that they go together. See, that's right. that's I think the thing yeah, that yeah. that's the light bulb that went on for me that I want to share with our listeners is those things go together. Okay, you, you fast forward a little bit more and, and get a little closer to you know my experience. Um, you've got the Vietnam War. And lots happening on college campuses, and uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, anti-war movement, and Wood Woodstock. And the next thing that happens is the Jesus movement, which looks like a religious version of all those other things. It's super interesting, but the Jesus movement would the Jesus movement have happened without Vietnam and without mm. all of these other things? Likely not. You know, I mean, it, it was a moment in time. You've got. Now you now I'm you, you get a little more into kind of where uh, I've been in ministry. Uh, when I started in ministry, the the baby boomers were firmly in control of the world, mm. and they were the pig in the python demographically that everyone was paying attention to. Well, if you do something that works for the boomers, it'll work for the biggest group. Therefore, it will work for you. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in the, the church growth movement and attractional church models in some regard came out, at least they flourished in the, the height of the baby movers right. uh, in the 80s and, uh, and 90s, really. Which isn't just strategy. That is some ecclesiological changes in the way you organize church. That right. isn't just a, how do we, how do we meet these people? That's a, you, you put church together this way. So that's, that's culture influencing the doctrine of the, the doctrine church. Of the church. And part of the reason I was just in a conversation with the pastor a few moments ago, where the um, you know if you build it, it's a, it, the field of dreams model of church. If you build it, they will come. Uh, we found this when we're you know looking to plan church, is that the first question is, do you have a building? Mm. And that do you have a building, and do you have something that people might be attracted to? is sort of the assumption, and that comes from that baby boomer mentality. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm doing a little bit of this reflection about the intersection between the world events and what the church believes and how the church responds to these world events, because 
Okay, we've just been through this pandemic, mm-hmm. and we've had all kinds of um, pressure related to race and politics and vaccines and masks and distance and and authority and all yes, that. and I am pretty certain that it is changing the way the church believes and mm. what the church believes about itself and about God and about authority and about their mission in the world. All of that is being shaped and changed. Now, I think it might be too early to say how, if I know how it's being changed. I have a right. few ideas, but that might be for another day. But the reality is that we have just been through something mm-hmm. that is going to have the same kind of influence and impact in the church across our country that, you know, the baby boomers did in the 80s and Vietnam did and the Cold War did. And I mean, you just go all the way back. Right. And the events in the world shape the way that the church sees itself, sees its mission, sees its belief structure and all of that. And so um, my, my take on this is to be humble and realize mm-hmm. that I'm, I think I'm doctrinally right about virtually everything. Okay, so that that's why one would hope so. And I'm humble. That's what that that goes together, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I say that because what a guy I am. What a guy. I, I know. I just amaze myself. But the 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 thing the the reason we're doing all this is because we're not. We are products mm. of the space and time we find ourselves in, and what I think about the world is shaped by my experience in the world. And it can't be otherwise. And, you know, church history or history in general and, and trying to, to see the church in other cultures. And there's a, there are a few strategies that you can have that might help you get a perspective that you don't have if you're just there um, in doing your own little thing. Mm. So that, that to me is the, is the thing that's really interesting. And I, I don't know, there might be... I would be really interesting if real interested if some of the uh, our listeners have other examples of how a certain experience or a certain you know uh, shared experience in the world has shaped the church. But I, I guess I would hope that the listeners would at least think that through. Mm-hmm. At least think about. I wonder how I view the world and how that's been shaped by the things that mm. um, by the things I've experienced or the things that have gone on around. Me and I, I mean, that's one of the things I've learned the most about, the, you know, in the work that we've done on this podcast is that, you know, I, I grew up in a time that I thought was, you know, just had it, had it all figured out. It was normal. We had it figured out and realized that there were some worldwide things like a Cold War shaping mm. the way that the church was and the way that I experienced the church. And so... We have another one of those moments. I'm really right. pretty confident we have another one of those moments. Um, oh, I get, I'll go ahead and say it so you don't have to. But we were talking about this a little bit before we were on air, and I, I think one of those changes had to, uh, the, one of the changes in the church brought about by the cultural moment had to do with the election in 2016. Mm. And um, there was a time in my life when the evangelical church was really confident that Bill Clinton was too much of a womanizer to be president. Mm. And I mean, that there was a lot of talk about it. 
Right. And then in 2016, Donald Trump was not. And I think that part of the change there was we found ourselves in a cultural moment where there were going to be some Supreme Court justices at stake. We found ourselves at a moment when, you know, Hillary Clinton would have been the president and that would have maybe been uh, really scary. And so that moment caused us to say, okay, are things different? And if, if they're different, we should probably make a different decision here. And I, I, so I think that moment is a, is a similar kind of thing. And I guess I just want us to be awake to those kind of moments. Well, it's, it's a subtle, it's not an explicit doctoral change, but it's a subtle, um, almost implicit doctrinal change in the way, in the way we view standards and the way we view what well, we expect of people. In that particular instance, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so, but it, but it, what do we hold firmly? I mean, if right. you say w- the beliefs are the things we hold firmly, that right. we actually we are, sure held them firmly in the nineties are important to us. They were more firm in the nineties than they were right. in 2016. So, and I think it, you'd have to say it was a cultural moment. Right. And so, you know, those moments are happening all the time. And in some of the interesting things, those moments might be happening. And now I'm going, now I'm now. I've been out of my depth in this whole podcast. I'm really out of you my just depth here. In the deep end right I'm now. just, I'm just now paddling, you know, hoping to stay afloat until we're we're done here. But um, I would say those moments probably happen more frequently mm. now because of the way that we have access to so much information that's so immediate. Mm. Um, you know, there are so many things that we might just now in Oregon be hearing about. Um, that happened a couple, you know, George Floyd. Uh, if that had happened in the, well, it did happen. It happened all the time, right? In a um, hundred years ago, mm-hmm. those sorts of things were, those sorts of awful things that people didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And they didn't react to, and there weren't riots because it happened a long ways away. And nobody right. heard about it. Now we get immediate you know, information about all of these things. And so there's these cultural moments that affect all of us happen faster, it seems to me. Mm. So I, I don't know that that's true, but I'm just processing this as we're talking because I, I, I really think that we've got to kind of have our wits about us. Well, and part of the reason we have quick access is technology. And I think mm-hmm. technology, though not a, a moment in time, not an event, it is a cultural change that is also shaping the, right. way, we, the way we read scripture, the way I, I think of even... Um, well, I can watch church online now. Um, that's probably good enough. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that's a change. No, you just change the way, the way you read scripture about what it means to gather with people, mm-hmm. uh, because you have this other option that wasn't even a wasn't even something you could even think about a hundred right. years ago. Right. Um, but because technology allows us to be disembodied and still seemingly connected, we assume that being disembodied is an okay way of engaging with the world, which is. That's a good example of a cultural moment. That yeah. moment wasn't here five years ago. Mm-hmm. That's a new moment we have. I mean, I was thinking of technology as a multiplier so that more people see the same thing and more people have shared experiences. Right. But, but your thing is equally true, I think. Um, so all that to say that this has just been a reflection from me listening to this most morose book about the Republic the of, of Suffering. suffering. And uh, that it just kind of set me on this cascade of how do the moments in history affect the way the church uh, believes, the way the church functions in the world, the way the church sees their mission, 
And I am afraid uh, that we, uh, it affects us more than we think. Mm. And I think the worst effect is if we don't recognize it. We're, so, we're bound to do the most damage or we have the most trouble if we don't recognize it. So we're all swimming in this fishbowl, which makes it hard to recognize it. Are there ways to pull ourselves out a little bit and give, give ourselves perspective so that we can recognize it? Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, my first answer is history will help. There's a real which book. Is, which is <laughs> one of the reasons we, you know, we do, you know. We, we've done a bit of history. We've done some historical episodes because that's, that's the best I can do. However, the thing that, I'm, that I've missed in church history or reading, you know, Puritans or reading whoever, is they had their moment in history too. Mm. And, and I'm like, oh, these guys are, this is the diamond here laying in the dirt. No, this, this got fashioned because of all of these right. other things. And I didn't, you know, I, you have to kind of keep that in mind as well. Mm -hmm. but, but I would say history is, is your friend on that. I think mm -hmm. um, recognizing this, this question, this is a question that I did end up asking um, a number of times during the pandemic was, how would this affect the church in China? How would this affect the church mm. somewhere else in the world? So there is a, you know, there is a immediate, even right now, cultural moment that's different somewhere else than right. it is right here. And so asking, you know, figuring out, getting some kind of multicultural mm -hmm. um, perspective will help you um, see the moment more clearly. Um, and, and you have people, you have friends that you could ask from those contexts. Um, and, and by observing what would be different in that other context, you can figure out what is the base sameness um, right. and figure, okay, this is different, this is different, and you can kind of work out the context and see what's, what, what is being influenced by the context in each thing and then go, oh, this is what's common. This is what um, should be more driving than right. the... What's the standard and what's, in, right. what's contextual? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's... Um, so, so I'd say get some people that you can talk to from maybe some different contexts. Like you, you had someone you could call who's been done church in China yeah. and other people... Um, Maybe you can't all get someone from China, but having other people to talk to is helpful. Yeah, and so, I mean, time and space is basically mm -hmm. your answer because you, that's what your moment in history is, mm -hmm. is your moment in time and space. And if you can transcend space somehow, somewhere else in the world, or you can transcend time, that's your best bet. Mm -hmm. And that, and I think, just be humble enough to recognize I'm, I'm here right now. Uh, you know, for a purpose, but also mm -hmm. I'm here right now and that's what I see or experience. I mean, we, it was interesting when we were talking about this ahead of time, you had said, well, I'm trying to think of things that happen in my lifetime. Well, because you're so much younger, it's, it was harder. But the reality is, the reality is that um, we all are just swimming in the moment we're in. And so none of us just by, you know, asking the question can identify what's the moment I'm in. I mean, it's just really hard because right. it's invisible to us. Right. It's like we're colorblind to our own situation. So mm -hmm. anyway, that's what I got for today. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Read some history, meet some people, pull your, see if you can pull yourself out of space and time a little bit. Um, be humble. I think that's yeah. that's helpful. Yeah, and don't feel like you've got to read that book. <laughs> it's but not a good books. read. It any history book. It doesn't even have to be theological. Any history book will show you that there are uh, 
equally image-bearing people who have lived in other times and other places who have tried to figure out the world. And what's common with yeah. you and them is that they are also image-bearers, yeah. and they've um, dealt with similar things, uh, but different ways, and right. just reading. And this wasn't a theological or histor- a Christian history. This was, just a, this was just how it is. Right. Which was, I think, the thing that triggered all these ideas for me. So, Well, if you listeners can think of any other um, events, any other moments, send us an email. And we want to ponder those because, especially in the last 30 years, it's a little bit harder to see them because we're swimming in them. And we're, we're literally making responses and reflexes to them. And right. we, we probably don't even know what they are. Um, so send us an email. You can do that and send an email to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review obviously goes a long way. If you want to leave an audio question, you uh, can do that at speakpipe.com slash City on Hill podcast. And we look forward to the next conversation.